All right, thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for uh, being here today. Great to see you all uh, present, and those of you at home as well, uh, welcome uh, to, to you too. Uh, we are in a series right now in the book of 2 Corinthians. Most of you are aware of this. Uh, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles uh, to 2 Corinthians 7, that's where we'll be today, most of uh, chapter 7, uh, verses 2 to 16, so a little bit more on that in just a minute. But uh, we are um, kind of in the middle of the series right now. We're going to finish up at the end of February or early March, so a couple more months to go. Uh, but this letter has been, I hope it's been fun for you, a, a fun, uh, learnful, and worshipful journey so far. It is a, uh, and I've said this a couple of times already in this book, that it is not the easiest book to understand. Uh, it is not uh, what we call a general letter of the New Testament, meaning kind of uh, full of general truths or to a general audience, but it is a very specific letter to a specific people written by a very specific person uh, with very specific contextual issues wrapped around it. Uh, and so because of that, it can, it can be hard to understand and hard to interpret. And today's passage is uh, rich theologically, uh, but very contextual. And so if you've ever read the book before, maybe you've had those feelings as well. Uh, but of course, part of our uh, endeavor into reading the Bible uh, comes with uh, interpretive uh, efforts, right? With understand what, what this book means, not just for the original audience, but for us as well, because it was written by God. And because in this case, it's so full of love and Paul's affections for the church, his story, uh, why he's separated from them uh, for a time, but why he just wants to be with them again and, and wants to encourage them in their faith and to help thwart false doctrine and false teaching from their midst. Because that's the case, uh, this can mean so much and does mean so much for us as, as well. And so uh, I think it's probably best today just to read the whole passage in full, then I'll come back and give a few more um, comments on the context before we dive into uh, the actual text. So today we'll look at these four things, love, admonition, sorrow, and repentance, basically in that order, and I'll explain why uh, that's the case. But as we read, uh, look for those four things and kind of how they lead uh, into uh, the next thing that comes right after it and how Christ uh, really saturates all these things too, as, we, as Paul yearns for these things in the heart's of the Corinthians themselves, the, Christ, the Christians at Corinth themselves. All right, so we'll look at uh, verses, or chapter 7, verses 2 through um, 16, actually, I believe is the end verse, not 18, that's wrong there. So 2 through 16 today, let's start in verse, uh, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you were in our hearts, to die together and live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we are afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us." For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness or eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of those or the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. All right, so a couple things on uh, what's going on here. If, if you remember, and I was kind of beginning this way too today as well, but I, I mentioned this uh, several weeks ago. The story behind First and Second Corinthians is kind of confusing. But just to try to simplify a little bit uh, for today's sake, especially for today's passage's sake, Paul, remember, is somewhat at odds with the Corinthians on a number of issues. Remember, he was going to go see them, but his plans changed, and that hurt them. They felt... Uh, that he kind of rejected them in that, even though he didn't intend to. They also had some theological issues that they were struggling with and that got projected onto Paul, who were then, uh, who they were starting to trust less. So there's kind of a breakdown in their relationship on that level as well. That will come into today's passage a little bit too. So at one point, what's basically going on in today's passage, then at one point, Paul sends them another letter, the so-called letter of tears, Uh, as he calls it earlier in the letter. Some of you might remember when he referred to that. I believe that was chapter 3. What's called a letter of tears elsewhere, that that, this being then, 2 Corinthians being the fourth letter, the letter of tears being the third. And he sent Titus to deliver it. And so Titus is bringing this tough love letter basically to them because they uh, had these theological issues. They had this distrust in Paul. Um, They weren't um, kind of working out what Paul calls the obedience of faith elsewhere in some of his letters to the churches. And so he has this just letter of love, but it's tough love. He's speaking the truth in love, and he didn't know how they were going to receive it. But Titus was the messenger. He was bringing the actual um, letter to them to read and to respond to, and he did that. And it, actually, it was received pretty well. That's partly what we're learning here in chapter 7. It was received well, though not necessarily perfectly, and we'll keep reading more about this as Second Corinthians goes on. But Titus returned to Paul then with the good news of their basic semi-restored relationship, their repentance of sin, their godly sorrow, which led to their healthy turning from away from their sin to facing Christ with faith and having this restored relationship, at least in part, with Paul. So their brokenness over their sin and how they just loved and received Titus as the messenger, who in this case is kind of an extension of Paul. So Paul's kind of saying, when you receive Titus well, you were receiving me well. And that was a good sign uh, to him that the church had some semblance of health and their relationship wasn't completely wrecked and, and so forth. Brighter days were essentially ahead for, um, for them relationally. All right, so it's kind of what's going on here in the whole letter, but we see a lot of very specific contextual things going on that if you don't know that, it's really hard to understand what he's talking about here with his, uh, with, uh, with his chapter of Second Corinthians. But let's just start with this first section. I have three um, pieces to today's sermon. The first is love and admonition. 
then we'll move into uh, sorrow and repentance, and then we'll kind of back up and get the 30,000-foot view and look at this passage a little bit more allegorically. Let's start with uh, love and admonition at first. And so one thing that we really start to feel at this point in the letter that you may have felt already in 2 Corinthians is just this tension between love, the love that Paul has for this church, and his uh, sometimes harsh language or the, admoni- the admonition, uh, the corrective language that he brings into his teaching and in this case into his, the letter proper, but also this letter of tears that we don't have uh, saved, but we do know that it existed. So Paul says then, for example, I do not regret making you grieve. Like he just as, as a pastor, he's saying grief is a part of growth. Like I don't regret that you took it poorly or that this uh, caused you sadness. He didn't want that, of course, like he loves them, but he doesn't have regret over the fact that that took place. And, he, and yet he also says things like, I have you in my heart to die together and live together. So these strong, very affectionate statements as well uh, correspond to this kind of inform the former things and, uh, and qualify them a little bit as well. So hard things to say that they needed to hear, but at the same time, he really pours forth his heart and speaks in extremely loving terms uh, to this church as well. So love and admonition clearly are going together here. The related tension would probably be in trying to understand how Paul can love a church so much that disrespected him so much. So uh, if you've been here for this series, you know that, that this was a church that just did not respect Paul at all, and yet he is shockingly maybe kind, right? He's, just, he's surprisingly kind uh, to this church, and even though he has some tough love for them, he has deep, 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 persistent, faithful love and affection for them as well. And so we'll get to some of that later, but that's another tension kind of going on uh, here as well. But before we get to that, I think just kind of on a basic level here, there's a lesson for us as Christians or just as human beings, some of you might not be Christians here today, but just a lesson for us, especially as believers, in how well-rounded our love can look towards others. And I'll just say for Christians, because this is a a letter from a Christian to other Christians, uh, especially our love for others in the church, like how well-rounded that can and should look. Especially a word here for leaders. And some of you are leaders in this church, or maybe a different church if you're visiting, or you might be a leader in this church in the future. And so, especially a word for leaders, because Paul is in focus here as an apostle, as a pastor. Elsewhere, Paul says in Ephesians 4, The idea, and I think I mentioned this a second ago, but the idea of speaking the truth in love. And so, in other words, this is what we need to do. We can't just be truth speakers. We have to do it in love. We can't just, it's it's possible to speak the truth and be a jerk with it or to be untactful with it. But Paul's saying, don't do that. And he's he's not just saying that here in his letter to to the Ephesian church, but he's showing that in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to them. He's saying, I, I, I have hard things to say to you. I'm admonishing you, but I, I'm doing this in love. I'm looking out for your, your best interest. And so love sometimes looks like saying the hard things. John Chrysostom, who was a bishop in Constantinople in the 4th century, I'm actually going to reference him a few times today. He had a lot to say, actually, about chapters 6 and 7 in 2 Corinthians, quite interestingly. He lived a long time ago. He had something very helpful here about this passage. He says, Some might think that expressions of praise contradict the admonitions which have gone before, but this is not so. For they help the rebukes to be more acceptable by putting them in the wider context of Paul's great love for the Corinthians. 
So this is just another way to say that admonition is just more palatable, it's more received in the context of love than it is in the context of anger or hate, right? It's sort of like a a criticism sandwich. You ever heard that concept before? Where if you have something hard to say to someone, you might encourage them first, then give the hard thing, then follow up with a with an encouragement at the end um, to make it more palatable. It's sort of like that. So in a time when, and this is just such an important word for all of us today, just in general in, in our society, but in a time when people think that if you just yell a little bit louder or insult the other side just a little bit more, then maybe it'll change their minds. Uh, this is an important word for us, right? Because obviously that never works, just to yell or just to insult the other side, or not to give the love when you're giving the hard truth. That never works, because when we do that, we leave out the magic ingredient, which is love. All right, so there's a lot of gospel in this as well, uh, when you think about it in these terms. First, in the sense that Christ's love for us helps his admonishments to us to be more palatable and receivable and gracious as well, right? So, Uh, like here on screen, think of places like in Revelation 1 and 2 where Jesus is identified as the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, who walks among the churches and who holds us in his hand, but then who also says on the heels of that in chapter 2, I have this against you, speaking to the churches, I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or when he says in many, many in various ways, this is a summative thing, but he says uh, to the churches in different ways, you guys are holding to false teaching. You must repent of that. Uh, and he has very strong words for the churches who are not doing that. But the idea here is the more we understand his love, the more acceptable the rebukes, the more we'll see them as expressions of love because sometimes love looks like anger. It looks like harsh language because we, um, we care, Right? Uh, Sometimes hate looks like apathy. Sometimes hate looks like um, not moving towards someone we love with uh, difficult things, right, to uh, to say and tweak and change uh, or to call out uh, as is the the case in this uh, particular case. So that's that's, uh, one side of this gospel idea in 2 Corinthians 7, but it's not just about context, it's also about change. And the idea with change is that love is the thing that leads to our life change, right? Love leads to our repentance, like it is for the Corinthians in today's passage. Paul is saying, uh, he's acknowledging that when he heard back from Titus that they did receive his letter well. They did receive the letter of tears well. They received Titus himself well, but he's couching all of that in love. And this is, this is the exact same case for us with, uh, with Christ. The idea that love leads to life change. Love leads to our repentance. Repentance just simply means to turn away from sin, to turn away from what we used to worship, to turn away from our old lives and face Christ with trust and faith. So it's not just about context, though it is. It's also about what truly breeds uh, change and transformation in our life. Jesus' loving death on a cross, the Bible says, Uh, is the thing that leads to our transformation. It moves in us to that end. The Bible is really big on talking about how the affection of love, uh, not within us, but within God, that pours into us is the thing that ultimately 
wrecks us and brings us low in a good way and moves in us to uh, reciprocate that love and to sort of pay that forward and just to be changed from the inside out. But, but here's the thing, law can't do that. Law and love in the Bible and just in our lives are at odds. Law cannot and never does lead to repentance or obedience. The commandments or the laws of the Old Testament and love are at odds. This is why Christ came to replace them. But love, we, we learn, breeds love. And 2 Corinthians 7 is meant to teach us that. That true character change ultimately happens by love, not by command. True character change ultimately happens by, and is preceded by, love, not by command. And so if you want, if you want your life to change, we have to face the cross and ask the question, what happened there? How is God loving me there? Is that moving in me, or is that just some idea that's outside of me alone, and that God did not meant to interject into my heart? I mean, if it stays out here in the realm of theory and ideas or myth, it will never produce life change. But, but the way the Bible speaks, in this case, in this chapter, the way it, what it's trying to show is that love produces this type of, of change. When we're forgiven, when we're loved, when we're fought for, especially when we know we don't deserve it, that produces the change. But law, law can never do that. Law has never died for your sins. Law has never loved you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is, operates on different rules by different premises. That's why there's two testaments in the Bible and, and so forth. All right? That's the first piece. We'll see this uh, theme come up a couple more times uh, today, but this is the first thing we see is love and admonition, how they go together and how they precipitate um, repentance and, and life change. All right? But then he continues and talks about this a little bit more, but from a slightly different angle. Let me read verses 9 and 10 again. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So one big question this passage elicits is, what's the difference between these two types of sorrow? And the question we have to ask, I think, kind of a la what Paul is doing here, is where does our sadness over our wrongdoing lead us? So where does our sadness over our wrongdoing, where does that move us to, whether it's in just our minds or even like even just physically with our bodies, but especially in our hearts and minds? Does it lead us to an empty grief or a shame alone? Or does it lead us to Jesus himself? Does it lead us to repentance or just to a fixation on what was lost? Or sorrow over the fact that we were caught? Or sorrow over the fact that we have loss of face? Maybe just embarrassments. Like, where does that, where does that type of sorrow or sadness over wrongdoing, um, disobedience, harming others, disobeying God, like, where do we go? And he's talking to Christians here too, by the way, right? So uh, this is why it's especially important to understand there are distinctly two ways we can go. Certainly for non-Christians too to understand this, of course. But for Christians every day, as sinners, we still sin. Where do we go when we commit wrongdoing? Uh, to, do we have a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance to Jesus or a worldly sorrow that leads us into the grave? To God or away from God, essentially. So on a basic human level, then, this is the mark of a truly saved person 
It's having grief over sin through the gospel and not apart from it. And here's what I mean. Charles Spurgeon said once, if Christ has died for me, I cannot trifle with that evil that killed my best friend. And Tim Keller has said something similar. He said, legalistic remorse says, I broke God's rules. While real repentance says, I broke God's heart. And so you can see here, especially in Spurgeon's quote, uh, Keller's is very helpful too, but especially in Spurgeon's quote, you see how repentance is grounded in rumination and thinking about the death of Jesus Christ. Like being moved by that, being impressed upon by that, and then being changed by it. It's not apart from, it's not aside from, it's not just good Christians repent and so I must. It is not trifling with an evil that killed my best friend or trifling with sin that nailed Christ to the cross. But you see how the, the, there's a personalness uh, with the sinner and Christ here in Spurgeon's quote, a personalness that is in play that leads us then to this grief over our sin that's godly, that knows we're, we're as the Bible says, grieving the Holy Spirit, grieving God um, more than just simply saying, well, I didn't check the box today. And having a sorrow, a worldly kind of sorrow over uh, breaking God's rules. On a different note, uh, back to Chrysostom for a second, he actually looks at this verse from a very different uh, but interesting angle, choosing to see the theme of God's sovereignty in it. All right, so this is kind of interesting where he goes with this, but I think it's really interesting and helpful. He says that sin gave birth to pain, but pain destroys sin. So he says, just as a worm that is born by a tree consumes the very same tree, likewise pain, which is born by sin, or sorrow, which is born by sin, kills sin when it is supplied by repentance and belief. So it's kind of a trippy way of looking at it, but basically he's saying, uh, or kind of seeing the notion of Genesis 50-20 in it, which says, when Joseph speaks to his brothers and says, what man intends for evil... God intends for good. He's kind of seeing that principle play out in 2 Corinthians 7, which in turn is another way of shaping our understanding of what Jesus was doing on the cross, like what his death was all about. And that was sin came through man or mankind, but it was the very thing then that God used to reveal his glory at the highest level when he sent his son to save us through the sin of those who crucified him, and to quote from chapter 5, by becoming sin, even though he knew no sin. And so he's kind of correlating those two ideas. He's saying, in the same way the introduction of sin into the world leads God on the very path of using said sin to destroy his son, the son very willingly taking on the punishment, as we all know, which again is how God destroys the sin, and in the same way all of that is true, so can our daily sins grieve us into and lead us on the path to destroying the same sin. It's kind of this, this circular argument of sorts. And so we, we actually see this play out in the life of Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. The, the idea that Judas's sin of betraying Jesus, which Jesus knew was going to happen, but his sin of betraying Jesus led to the eventual destruction of the sins of cosmic high treason, of disbelief, of murder, and of hate, because Jesus died for them on the cross. You see how it's kind of circular there? 
So we know this from the biblical story, but what Paul is saying is in the same way, if we have the right kind of worldly sorrow that leads us back to Jesus in the ways we just talked about, then sin can actually produce a context for us to kill the very sin by going to Jesus through that sin. It's really kind of this interesting way of thinking about it. Now, of course, this does not mean we have license to sin because one could say, well, great, let's just sin all the more. But that's not what it, that's not what it means, obviously. Chrysostom or Paul here. But it does mean this. It is an invitation for us to turn from sin underneath the love of Jesus Christ, which is the thing that killed our sin in the first place. Or to see the, to the sorrow we have over our sin as an opportunity to kill that very sin in the spirit of how God used it to kill his son. So he might rise again, bear our sin in the first place, but rise again in victory over it and share that with us. That's what happens when we believe the gospel, right? So, or in other words, to put it a little more concisely, I think this is what, this is what Christus is saying, what Paul is saying ultimately. Godly sorrow when mixed with repentance, a right kind of repentance and belief, godly sorrow is extremely strong. It is the power to, with God's help, slay our sin, whereas worldly sorrow doesn't. Worldly sorrow just feels bad about not doing what good Christians should do. And we, just, we spiral down and get more and more and more depressed. But a godly sorrow, which leads to repentance and belief, is extremely, God in that is extremely strong. And we know this from Christ's story, which how which again says, it talks about how God used sin through Jesus to kill sin in the same way that story will play out in, in our life. And so it's an invitation then for us to repent underneath the love of Christ, which again, uh, because of how, how exactly Jesus saved us, we can trust that that will produce a context for us to grow and to change and not to wallow. All right, the um, third section here is to talk about the dramatic interplay between Paul and Titus and the Corinthians. So again, I was starting this, this way this morning because, um, and again, I feel like I've said this a few times in this series already, I think, unless it's just been personal conversations with some of you guys, but um, 2 Corinthians can be a very difficult book to understand. I think chapter 7, what you guys, what we're, we're doing today, what you just read today, I'm assuming for some of you it's the first time you read it, these are difficult chapters of the Bible to understand because they're so specific. But what really helps us when understanding the Bible in general, but reading uh, Paul on these terms, is to back up and just get the big picture. I want to draw our attention back to uh, earlier parts of this letter, a lot of you were here for this, where it became clear that Paul viewed not only his words, but his very life, his story, as a testimony to the gospel. Okay, so he's not just preaching the gospel with his words, but he's saying, look at my life as a dramatization, a plane out of the gospel. This has become very clear in this letter, in 1 Corinthians 2, others of his letters, where he talks about himself as an apostle who doesn't just lead the church, but suffers for the church and shares in the sufferings of Christ for the church. Even in Colossians 1, I want to say 29, but it's not that. It's right before that, I think, 27 maybe, where he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for you. And you might think, well, what's lacking in Jesus' afflictions? How, how is that not sufficient for the Colossian church? And Paul's not saying it wasn't sufficient. 
He's just saying he's so much sharing in Jesus' sufferings for the church that they, they need to see him suffer as well for the sake of their ongoing encouragement. That they might not graduate from the death and sufferings of Jesus, but see that as the, the ongoing thing that identifies them as fought for and died for people. I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit. But again, Paul's saying his preaching and his sufferings are important. His explicit unpacking of gospel truth in this letter and his testimony which revolved around rejection, persecution, pain, and anxiety. Both those, it's like a double-edged sword, a two-sided coin. Both those things are what the Corinthians needed. They needed his preaching, but also to see him suffer. It's to, he said, it's to your advantage that I suffer. It, it would not be to your advantage if I didn't suffer. because It would send all the wrong signals about the gospel. That was a big part of the first few chapters, if you, if you remember that. 1 Corinthians 4.9, he says, My life is a spectacle for the world to look at and to watch Christ's sufferings play out again in real time. And then to watch God himself draw a thick black line underneath his sufferings to underscore the ongoing importance of the story of Jesus' sufferings for our lives. That's what he's saying. God's drawing a thick black underline. He's taking a big yellow highlighter and highlighting my life in my letters. Not just me saying Christ died for you, but me being persecuted, me being anxious, me being beat down, me being like a jar of clay, being shattered, so the treasure might come forth for you. He had a, he has a bunch of word pictures for this, a bunch of dualisms and dualities. We talked about that the past few weeks. He said this in many and various ways, but God is drawing this thick line underneath it to underscore uh, the, the importance of the gospel, the importance that God suffered for us that we might live. So in today's passage, we find yet another expression of this idea. And, and to really see it, we have to remember that God is the ultimate author of this letter, not Paul. So if you don't believe that yet or you weren't aware that that was the case, it, it, we have to start there. Paul himself acknowledges this in his letters. Peter does about Paul's letters. The Bible itself says it's God-breathed. Ultimately, these are letters written by God to us more than it's Paul writing to the Corinthians. We must approach it that way in order to see this. In other words, the Bible is historical and allegorical together. And they can be both. Augustine said in the 4th century essentially something like that. He said, Cannot something be historical and allegorical at the same time? Speaking of Abraham's, the, the story of Galatians 4 and his two wives and two sons, that whole story, if you know what, that, what that's all about, all right? So, and we talk this way in our lives a lot, right? Like something might happen in, in your life historically. Someone might record it on, on their phone. It might be written down in a journal. So it's history, it's factual, it's actual. And yet you might ask the question, yes, but what does that mean? What's God trying to tell me? What's the lesson in that historical event. We talk this way all the time, right? The Bible talks even more in these terms, however, uh, than, than we do. All right? God has something even more important for us to see here than what Paul initially intended. And, and here's, here's what I mean. Paul's life as an allegory of Christ. So from the 30,000-foot view then, this is basically what we see in this passage if you've already forgotten what the passage is about, this is basically a summary okay, of what's going on in chapter 7, but also the background, historical background 
to what's happening in Corinth and Paul's in Macedonia and Philippi writing to them and, and receiving Titus back and so forth, all right? But backing up, getting the big picture, this is what we see. We see Paul at odds with a group of people. They're sinning against him. He initiates reconciliation with them by writing to them and sending the letter by way of a messenger, Titus. They receive the messenger well. Titus advocates for them when he returns to Paul, all of which confirms their salvation and begins to restore their relationship with him, with Paul. Then Paul overlooks their guilt and dismisses it, even calling them innocent at one point in this chapter. He boasts in them when they least deserve it. He rejoices and says the Corinthians are in his heart, and Titus's affection is said to be even greater. And I, and I forgot to mention the fact that Paul says, I'm suffering for you, right? My, my, my sufferings are part of this story. Okay, so if I were to ask you guys what that sounds like, some of you might say, well, parts of that sound a lot like the entire biblical story of redemption summarized in a few sentences. And you'd be right. This is an allegory. It's our story. It's God's story. It's Jesus, the ultimate messenger's story, right? And so here's what I mean. Like Paul to the Corinthians, God initiated reconciliation and salvation with you. He wrote you a letter, and he sent it by way of Jesus, Jesus himself being the letter, or what the Bible calls the word of God, while you were still sinning against him. This is why it's important to see the Corinthians are sinning against Paul as he's loving them. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, while we were still the Corinthians, Christ died for us. Here's something else we learn. Receiving God's messenger, Jesus, the ultimate Titus, as per John 1.12, is what reconciles you with God, not keeping God's commands. This is massive to see. John 1 says, yet to all who did receive Jesus, who received his coming, who accepted his advent into the world. To those who believed, believed, trusted in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Period. Isn't that good news? This is precisely what we're seeing play out in the Corinthians' life in chapter 7 today. Their reception of Titus is what began the reconciliation process between them and, and Paul. But it's precisely the reception of the messenger. There's nothing in chapter 7 about their perfect morality. It's their reception of the messenger that encourages Paul, the reception of Titus and his advocacy for them when he returns to Paul. That is the bridge, not in what they do. It's massive to see and gospel truth dripping all over it. The third thing is, through Christ, God overlooks your guilt and even forgets about it. Hebrews 10 says, God speaking, their sins and lawless acts I will forget. I will remember no more. That's true if you're a Christian. God forgets. He's already forgotten. They're so dealt with. Christ so much dealt with your sins and your wrongdoing. They're forgotten. And your future sins as well. But again, the commands can't do this, right? But we see this in chapter 7. 
Paul overlooks their guilt. He's forgetting about it. He's calling them much more innocent than they deserve. Uh, Again, one commentator I read says, uh, Paul is treating them much better than they deserve. And he boasts in them when they least deserve it. Paul's boasting the church when they least deserve it, he's boasting. This is why this letter is confusing. Without the gospel on a human level, like just with logic in mind, this makes no sense. Like how could you love this way? How could you just look over all this offense and wrongdoing and disrespect? Like it's unfair that he's labeling them this. Unfair. Just like it's unfair that God labels us purely innocent right now. The only way he can do it is if we have an atoner, one who took our place, one who bore our sins. And this is how the Bible speaks, right? This is the the rules by which the gospel operates. It's unfair, and yet it's full of love. There's not a tit-for-tat fairness with it, uh, like we're seeing here with Paul's relationship to the Corinthians, but even better with God's relationship towards us. Jesus unfairly suffered, we're unfairly exonerated. But love doesn't operate on, on fairness, right? Like, I, I think I told you guys before, but my wife and I talk about that with our kids in our home. Like, we, we don't, we, if there's ever kind of a call for fairness, <laughs> we say, uh, we don't operate by fairness. We operate by love in this home. And sometimes that means there's not going to be fairness. You're not going to all get the same thing, or, you know, always. Or, but you are going to be loved. And sometimes it's unfair that your mom and I suffer and take blows for you unfairly, even though we don't deserve to in that moment, right? And so we try to bring the gospel into that. Anyway, just saying, this is how, this is how it works with God. We're not fairly being rewarded for our good works. We're unfairly being saved because we don't deserve him. And that, again, is exactly what's happening between Paul and the Corinthian church. And then finally, in and through all this, he has, he has us in his heart. And his affections for us are, quote, even greater than ours for him. Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so... If there's a common theme to all this today, um, I would maybe highlight this fourth piece here. In fact, everything we've been saying for the past few minutes, but highlight this fourth piece especially, and it would be this. If there's a common theme, it would be this. It's more important for you to understand God's affections for you than for you to try hard to perfect your affections for God. Does that make sense? It's more important for you to understand God's affections for you than for you to try hard to perfect your affections for God because the former is the gospel, not the latter. The gospel is not you love God, the gospel is God loves you. And how much? By giving up his one and only son for you to die on a cross. And because of this though, because understanding his affections for you through Jesus is the thing that will in turn, you know, turn your affections back properly towards him, right? This goes back to the first piece of love actually does do something in us. It changes us. And we want life change. We, it's part of the promise of God is that we will be transformed into Christ's image, right? But the way that happens is not through the command, but through the gospel. One last Christostom quote here. Actually, this came up in, in chapter 6. 
But he says it is to respond to love is not as great as to offer it in the first place. He actually goes on to say, even if the second love is as big as the first, it's still less because it came second. This is how we think as Christians, right? How the Bible talks. There's great loves and lesser loves. They might both be good. What he's saying here, though, is to, for us to respond to God's love, it's not as great. It's not as great. It never will be as great. It doesn't mean it's like not worthy of pursuit. It just means it's not as great. To offer love is better. It's first place. Response is second place. Not as good, but it's subservient to the first thing, right? If there's a common theme to all this today, it would be that. God's affections for you are bigger than yours. Like, like the gospel is that God loved you, right? Remember that. Loved you so much. The gospel of 2 Corinthians 7, Paul loved the Corinthians more than they loved him. That's why we're talking about this. It, it, did you feel that in this passage? Wasn't it clear that Paul was the one initiating reconciliation? He was the one primarily speaking. He was the one moving, sending Titus, moving towards them. The message there isn't that you would copy that on a human level primarily. The message is, do you believe that's what God did for you or not? Do you believe he sent his son? Have you received him well? Like the Corinthians received Titus well. That's what dictates your salvation. That's your hope. That's the response. Have we received the Son? Have we received the word of salvation? Like he's calling out to all of us right now, even in this very sermon, have we responded? Are we responding? Will we respond uh, tomorrow? And so the invitation then is receive him well, repent of your sin, believe in him and be reconciled with God and have your sins forgotten about forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you so much, God, for 2 Corinthians 7. And even though it is a cryptic, obscure passage, uh, man, there are um, fewer intense expressions of love from Paul, uh, and unfairly so, that we see in, in, in any of his letters, really. Uh, it is, it's unfair, it's shocking, it's um, not um, reward-based. Uh, it is out of, out of thin air. Just like your love for us came out of the air to earth in the form of a human being born in a manger 2,000 years ago who would grow up and die as a human being in our place. And like Titus before Paul, he would advocate for us and bring news of our response, a positive reception of him back to the Father so that we're, we're saved by our association with Jesus, our trust in him dying for our sins uh, and not in our, our moral fortitude. Uh, because the, the law can never lead to repentance. It's only love. And, and love breeds love. And so where the law, whereas the law failed, love will always succeed. So may we be motivated, changed, moved by love and rumination on love, thinking about meditation on the love that God showed us on the cross while we were still sinners. Praise be to God, that's the case. And, in Christ's name we pray, and God help us to worship and leave here with peace today, knowing all that's true. Amen.